This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, the business station. My name is Rich Bradbury. Welcome to Matt Splained. It's hot in the city. And if Matt Armitage thinks I'm going to read out the lyrics to a Billy Idol song on air, um, yeah, he's mistaken about that. We're, we're talking about smart cities today. Let's leave it at that. Matt, really, I mean, Billy Idol, come on. Well, that's just my way of saying, you know, welcome back. We've missed you. What could be better uh-huh, than a bit you. of Billy Idol? Um, and it has been really hot here while you've been away. I know it's been really hot in the UK as well, but... Um, yeah. That, that makes this a good time to talk about smart cities. So uh, a couple of years ago, I did some work with Think City, a Malaysian NGO that specializes in urban policy. Mm-hmm. Now, I did a, a lot of research at the time uh, around smart cities, walkable cities, livable cities, you know, that kind of thing. And on the show, we've also covered uh, Keyside, which was uh, a far-reaching urban development concept that was being planned by Sidewalk Labs, an urban innovation division of Alphabet, which yeah. aimed to transform part of a kind of moribund 2,000-acre uh, site in Toronto's waterfront into one of the world's smartest developments. Now, the 12-acre site that Sidewalk Labs took on, uh, it basically had sensors on and in everything. It would provide kind of real-time feedback about traffic flows, resident needs, uh, all kinds of variables uh, that could be used to sort of constantly tweak and upgrade the neighborhood uh, so that it would be sort of permanently and optimally usable. Mm. Now, that, of course, is the utopian pitch of the project. Uh, Toronto residents were worried about uh, handing all of that data, that information, over to a commercial company. And they had these fears that it would have amounted to a kind of very uh, pervasive and all-encompassing surveillance system that would have stripped them of their right to privacy. Mm. Uh, There was, of course, lots of automated innovation. There were autonomous taxis, autonomous rubbish collection, heated sidewalks, but, of course, all of those data layers in Mm -hmm. what was to be a $900 million project. Um, Was it not cancelled because of the uh, pandemic? Well, that was the official reason that was given, but um, and it, I guess it wasn't even so much behind the scenes. There seemed to have been a lot of brinksmanship going on. So Toronto mm. residents that rebelled against the data harvesting, uh, Sidewalk Labs apparently taking a, a, adopting a kind of take-it-or-leave-it approach to the project. You know, either mm-hmm. we get to keep the data or the deals off. So it didn't look like there was much middle ground as neither side seemed to be able to to budge. Uh, I'm kind of torn. You know, it would have been an interesting project, but, Mm -hmm. you know, data should always, I think, A, be created with the consent of residents with the right to opt out or at least to be able to view what information is captured about you and have that option to purge it. Mm -hmm. And, And B, you know, any data captured in these kind of projects should be classed as a public good. It shouldn't belong to a private entity. Right. So we've talked about the benefits of open data in terms of urban planning before. Uh, And, you know, the various agencies, departments and municipalities that operate in cities 
generate troves of data. And in the past, all of that data has been siloed. Open urban data policies allow that information to be linked and mined for all kinds of creative uses to improve the lives of residents. But th- this kind of approach, um, the Sidewalk Labs approach, it's not unique, is it? I mean, there are plenty of smart city developments across the world that operate on a, 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 a similar model. Yeah, and uh, another one was uh, announced last week, um, the uh, project called The Line at Neom in Saudi Arabia, mm. which takes mm-hmm. a radically different approach to urban planning. In oh, that yeah. The, uh, yeah, I mean, the cityscape is envis- envisaged to be 100 kilometers long, but only about 400 meters wide. Uh, mm. So the entire city is basically one long street. I mean, you can check out the launch videos. Uh, it's really astonishing to look at but i'm not sure that it's even physically possible to to you know to create or realize that vision mm. but to answer your question you know yeah there there are plenty of smart city projects that are highly data centric neom seems to be one of those and most of them do seem to be in countries where there is less openness and transparency in terms of data and surveillance, and less of an expectation uh, of individual privacy rights. So this was a kind of test case, the uh, the uh, Toronto project. Uh, would the public be a willing to trade their privacy rights for utility, for better living and working conditions? Mm-hmm. And the answer, when it comes to Toronto at least, seems to be no. So of course, that leaves us with a lot of questions. It does. Um, when I was looking at Neom, I just got images of like Mega City 4 and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, people probably won't get that reference, so I might have to explain it another time. Now, uh, but you leave us with, with a lot of questions, uh, and I guess most of which we don't really want answers to, do we? Well, as Richard knows, facetiousness just makes me more truculent. So um, <laughs> it in this instance, the, the the question is what happened to the development, and I am way, uh, looking forward to that episode where we get to uh, discuss Mega City Four and Judge Dredd. That would be awesome. <laughs> um, so, you know, Sidewalk Labs may have walked away, but of course, Toronto still had this twelve-acre plot of land that it wanted to develop. Right. So, for most people, of course, the story started and ended with Sidewalks Lab. Um, But there's a fascinating report on MIT Tech Review about the new plans for the site, and which is what we're using as a a jump-off point today. And one of the things we often overlook in these explorations of technology and innovation is the human aspect. We overlook Mm. human technology, human innovation. We head straight for sensors and data harvesting and AI and automation. But those aren't the only ways to employ technology to create better places to live. So what do the plans for the new site look like? I mean, really, really different. I mean, there's a, a two-acre forest that's part of the plan. There's an urban farm. Uh, I think there are sort of theatre and, you know, creative develop- developments. The entire development's very green, not just in the carbon neutral sense, which it is, but in the sense of, you know, physical greenery. There mm. are, are five towers and there are trees and climbing plants everywhere in the renderings. So it's it's very walkable. It's very livable. And importantly for Toronto, which has a huge affordable housing problem, there yeah. are going to be 800 affordable apartment units within the development as well. Now... Do you think this kind of marks the end, um, in the West at least, of these uh, very tech-centric smart cities? Well, I mean, that's kind of a, a difficult question. As the MIT 
piece points out um toronto sees or this new project in toronto uh the 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 2.0 it's kind of a revival of the 19th century garden city idea right now, that concept was hugely popular in Europe in the late 1900s and the early part of the 20th century. And it was the idea that public access to green spaces, uh, the idea of bringing elements of the countryside into urban environments, wasn't just aesthetically pleasing. It was also great for the health and well-being of the people that lived in those places mm -hmm, as well. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things we saw during the early part of the lockdowns here in Malaysia was how little access a lot of people have to green spaces so that even when people were allowed to exercise, you know, in their apartment compounds or around their tamans, there would often be very little greenery for them to interact with. And since uh, the kind of easing of those restrictions, we've seen this explosion of interest in outdoor activities in Malaysia and around yeah. the world, yeah. um, you know, hiking, bicycling, all of these things with people heading to forest reserves and into the jungle on their weekends and their off days. So our, our appreciation for green spaces has increased exponentially. Um, and I'm, I mean, I'm, can I go off on a, a tangent a bit? Um, uh, there's still kind of a smart city flavor to this. Uh, go on then, I'll, I'll allow it, yeah. Ah, it's always good to have you back. File sarcasm with Frida. Um, you know, this is a, a story from a New Scientist. And, you know, we're talking about the benefits of greenery in urban spaces and how it's good for, you know, our mental health. Yeah. So researchers have been interested in quantifying those effects for the past couple of decades. And interest has only intensified since the pandemic. Uh, it's not just, you know, those rather nebulous ideas of happiness and well-being. We're increasingly finding empirical proof that green spaces boost memory, they boost creativity, mm -hmm. they can help to reduce the effects of depression and anxiety, and even, uh, you know, uh, ameliorate conditions like ADHD. And this is something that's increasingly being reflected in urban planning. Mm -hmm. There's mounting evidence as well that blue spaces, uh, areas where green spaces meet water, can bring us even greater positive health effects. Uh, a recent study in the UK, which was a collaboration between uh, the London School of Economics and the University of Sussex recruited 20,000 people across the country. They used a smartphone app to send questionnaires out to participants at random times, just basically asking them how they're feeling. The key oh. to the survey was, yeah, I mean, very straightforward. The, Hello, the key mate. was how are you just, yeah, how are you feeling? How are you feeling right now? But the, mm. the key was the right now part. So they had to respond to the survey instantly rather than that thing of leaving it until later or mm. until they feel, you know, less anxious or in a better mood. Because, you know, don't forget, this was a survey of British people. Um, <laughs> we're a nation of people who always say, yeah, we're fine. Falling we're off fine. the ladder. Yeah, yeah I'm fine. Yeah. My leg's broken in three places. But it could be worse. Hospital? No need. I'll go see the doctor, doctor next week if it hasn't mended by then. Yeah. Now, I'm guessing the survey revealed that people were happier then when they were around nature. Yeah. And thanks for bringing me back there. Otherwise, it was yeah. going to be my uh, experimental one-man show for the next 20 <laughs> minutes. Um, and that can be really hard going, especially as there's a, a seven-minute puppetry segment that doesn't really come across too well on radio. Never. Um, yeah, what, who knew? Um, so, you know, the researchers collated more than a million responses. And uh, because it's a smartphone app, um, oh, sorry, I was 
waiting for my puppet drum roll. Uh, and I realized, yeah, we're not doing that. Um, yeah, anyway, no, we're not doing that. No. Um, as it's an app, they had location data. So yes, of course, people were happier in nature, but they were most happy when they were near water, at lakes, the coast, rivers. And there's a mm. growing body of evidence supporting the benefit of blue spaces. Uh, the Blue Health Project is a consortium of researchers looking at the ways that water improves our well-being. And the results broadly show that we get the most benefit where green spaces and blue spaces meet. So it's not an either-or thing. So you would be much better off watching the birds at sunset at a lake, for example, rather than just sitting on a lounger by your condo pool. But if that lounger by the pool is what you have access to, then, of course, it still provides a boost. Ha! Huh. Uh, and do we know why uh, we feel these uh, connections to, to nature and, and to water? Well, I mean, there's lots of theories. I mean, it's something that's long fascinated behaviorists, philosophers, anthropologists, evolutionary scientists, you know, it, it's a, of interest to people mm. in a lot of different areas. Mm. One argument is that because we evolved in natural settings, our mm -hmm. brain is kind of programmed to seek them out. Right. Uh, there's even an evolutionary theory. Um, this is considered quite contentious, by the way. It, it's not... Uh, necessarily accepted widely. Um, but there's an evolutionary theory that suggests that water played a role in our development as an upright bipedal species mm. um, that says that our early ape ancestors, as they moved out of forests and into aquatic environments, would have been increasingly forced into that upright stance, you know, keeping your head above water as they negotiated those environments. But the mm. one that really intrigues me is behavioral. Um, it's, uh, it dovetails with the digital amnesia show I did with Frida last week, where mm -hmm. we talked about the argument that digital devices are a constant distraction and they disrupt our ability to experience events in the world around us. And consequently, they affect the way we write down accurate memories of those events because they're based on a partial and distracted experience of them. So this is a, an attention restoration theory. Yeah, um, it's exactly that. I mean, it's the idea that there are two types of attention, um, involuntary um, and voluntary. Uh, the voluntary is also known as directed attention. Mm -hmm. So it's straightforward, you know, it's top down versus bottom up thinking. In involuntary thinking, um, it's bottom up. We're being guided by sensory information and that sensory information controls our thoughts. In directed thinking, it's top down. We need to narrow our attention to concentrate on a single action or task. So the brain is working to exclude all that additional sensory uh, input and stimuli. Mm. So the idea is that distracted thinking is much more process heavy. It's mentally exhausted, uh, mentally exhausting. Um, whereas if we go out into green and blue spaces, these trigger our involuntary attention. Your eye is being taken to trees and to flowers. You're smelling the air or feeling the breeze. And this actually gives your mind some pause. It gives your brain time to relax. You're giving yourself over to the sensations. And it's thought that because of the constantly evolving nature of blue spaces, you know, the way patterns form on the water, the way it moves, the waves, 
but it provides additional stimuli that green spaces don't provide that allow you to drift off within that involuntary space. Do you want to give me an om? I'll wait till the end of the show. Right, I mean, because I think we've probably just experienced hippie Matt for the very first time. Um, Anyway, uh, let's see if he's back to his usual self-destructive state right after the break. You tuned into Matt Splained here on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Burning for more. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. My name is Rich Bradbury. Welcome back to Matt's Plane. Um, we're looking at smart cities on Matt's Plane today. Um, Matt, are we continuing with your uh, water theory diversion? Um, well, we're not, um, but I do have to address something else. Um, as we went into the break, you accused me of being self-destructive, and mm. that's completely untrue. Um, it's everyone else who's going to be destroyed because I've got my bunker. Ah, and I've been, tr- yeah, I've been training myself to crawl around in the dark for years, like a worm. <laughs> but yes, um, we are heading back to smart cities after that diversion. I really didn't need to share that. Um, we were talking uh, about Keyside Toronto, and we touched on the topic of garden cities, um, yeah. which was what prompted my you know, sojourn into the uh, blue. But I think we have um, this big perception issue when it comes to the concept of smart cities. Mm. Um, In that they have to be uh, tech-centric. Yeah. So one of the things about Sidewalk Labs' development was that it took a a very internet upwards approach. Uh, Yes, the buildings themselves were, you know, timber-framed, environmentally conscious, but it was an internet zero type approach. You know, the idea was how do we connect everything? And the MIT review uh, piece points uh, out that there are big differences between Canadians and Americans in the way that they view private companies. Uh, In the US, you know, as we see in the news every day, there is a lot of public mistrust in the government. Mm -hmm. And there, private companies are likely to be more trusted to deliver public services than municipal or government bodies are. Mm -hmm, In mm -hmm. Canada, of course, it's the opposite. The government and municipal authorities enjoy a lot of public trust, but private companies don't in the same way. Hence, Mm. you know, that pushback from Toronto residents against this idea that all their publicly generated data would be owned by a private company. So there was a a huge mismatch in perception and expectation between Sidewalk Labs and the residents of Toronto. So on the one hand, you have a company that didn't foresee the differences in public opinion on that Canadian side of the border. And you had a municipal body in Canada that didn't really comprehend the, uh, the, the privacy concerns of the residents or the implications of giving that data to a private company when they awarded the project to Sidewalk Labs. But what we're seeing in coverage of this story is a lot of comments that this is the end of the smart city. And of course, that's a very binary black and white approach to a complex issue. Hang on. So so once again, you're arguing for the machines? No. Um, today, I'm not, probably for the first time ever. Um, I, 
I mentioned uh, human technology at the, the top of the show. So we yeah. have this idea that when we say smart, it has to mean digital. Uh, so, for example, building a two-acre forest in the city, that's smart because it cleans and purifies right. the air. Right. Having yeah. a, a green canopy throughout the city provides shade and shelter. Not only that, it cools the surrounding area and it reduces what are known as heat island effect. So the net result of that is not only a more livable neighborhood, it also reduces energy consumption. And as the temperatures in those heat islands increase, you use more and more energy to cool the offices, the shops, the homes in that neighborhood. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. again, depending on how those green spaces are designed, they can also provide water catchment and retention. You know, we're seeing some of the urban planning in China look back to traditional step terraces with rice paddies for their inspiration. Yeah. These are just simple efforts that build resilience and allow towns and cities to adapt to changing climates and external shocks. So in this sense, we're using smart in the sense of um, clever. Well, in a way, but it's more than that, because these are still smart solutions in a technological sense. You know, we know that if we put solar panels on the roofs of buildings, we can make communities more energy independent and less reliant on national grids. Mm. That, in turn, helps to reduce our dependence on fossil fuels. Uh, planting trees has a similar net effect, especially when coupled with initiatives like expanding the use of solar panels. Mm -hmm. So the tree is actually a technology to reduce energy use, but we don't view it as a piece of technology. We just look at it as a tree. So right. when people say that the idea of the smart city is dead, it isn't. It's just evolving. It's like the idea of the walkable neighborhood, the 15-minute city. These are very smart ideas. You know, the idea that you have everything you need from green spaces to retail to health services, you know, et cetera, et cetera, everything within a 15-minute walk of your home, that is a very smart solution. And it's also one that is extremely complex to engineer. And what types of benefits are we likely to see from these 15-minute city approaches? Well, you know, this is a, a very basic uh, response given the, the, the time we have. Um, you know, on the one hand, you're reducing the dependence uh, of the residents on things like cars and buses. Um, mm. You know, look at the commute times for people living in the Klang Valley. You know, a lot of people, it's an hour, hour and a half, two hours yeah. each way every day. If yeah. more of us were able to work close to where we live, and that is a huge task. You know, these are really difficult problems to solve. But if we need to travel less far, there are fewer cars on the roads overall. They're on the road for less time. And mm -hmm. of course, we gain more time to spend with our families, to spend on leisure activities. And it's the same for meeting our daily needs. The less distance we have to travel, the better it is for everyone around us. Yeah. Uh, then, of course, you know, you you look at improving public transport links that connect those communities, and you look at those last mile solutions, things like bicycle schemes and electric scooters. Those things, if they're managed well, can have a massive impact as well. But if I say to someone, you know, here's a by the hour hire bicycle for you to take from the train station to your house. They don't think of that as being a technology solution because mm. they don't think of a bike as being technology. Mm. They look at the payment or the hire app and they see that as the technology component. Yeah, yeah. 
But out of the two, which is the more useful technology? Which actually gets you home, the app or the bike? Mm. So it's really about switching mindsets and getting rid of these preconceptions about what makes a city smart. Well, yeah. I mean, considering the smart city concept itself is relatively new, it, it sounds, you know, it sounds strange to say that we have to throw away preconceptions, but that really is the truth of it. Smart mm. can be as straightforward as an economic diversification of the neighborhood's population. Mm -hmm. uh, look at the Toronto project. Those 800 affordable apartments mean that people who work in the stores and offices in the district can actually afford to live there. And that's yeah. really unusual for urban development projects. You know, and that doesn't just bring things like environmental benefits. Because the lower paid workers don't have to travel huge distances to work in the district, there are economic benefits too. The income earned in the district is spent in the district. So you start to create these kind of circular microeconomies within towns as well. Yeah. And, and where does the uh, digital technology fit into these more um, analog smart city approaches? Well, that, that's the thing. I mean, that's why I, I said it's kind of a change of perception because the technology fits in into the same places that it did before. You know, it, you've still got sensors linked to the solar cells because that tells you when to send energy into the national grid and when you need to import energy from the grid to meet your needs. The sensors measuring traffic flow and traffic density, um, looking at things like other areas in the neighborhood where there are bottlenecks of cars or bikes or even pedestrians. And if so, how can that data then be used to adapt the existing infrastructure to ease those bottlenecks? Um, mm. I think it was last year we talked about the 3D printed bridge that was installed over a canal in Amsterdam. Yeah, now, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that thing is packed with sensors that provide feedback about how people are using the bridge. Um, it's also showing how it reacts to temperature and different weather conditions. Again, you know, we have this black and white approach. If there's data being taken, then it's surveillance capitalism, but it doesn't have to be like that. Data that provides feedback rather than um, identifies individuals. Yeah, I mean, I know that's a tall order in this world of, you know, masked identifiers. Ideally, the data should simply be providing feedback. Mm. But, you know, it's the same with building sensors that switch lights off in offices when no one is using that part of the building. Uh, things that are measuring temperature and air quality. Those things allow a building to be managed more energy efficiently. Mm -hmm. uh, external monitors uh, of air quality can also tell you how well that tree canopy is functioning. Um, take the example of the urban farm that Think City built up in Penang. Sensors there help to adjust the nutrient and water mix that the plants receive. They can tell you when individual rows require more attention. Are they getting enough light? Are they getting too much light? You know, urban farms are typically small and intensive. So any breakdowns in the system can jeopardize every single thing that you're growing. And of course, at the same time, the plants and fruits and vegetable crops start to attract insects and birds. So they're increasing biodiversity. Those insects can pollinate other plants across the district or beyond. So you start to see how the digital and analog components are not replacements for one another. They're mm. complementary. If you mm. have one, you need the other. So when people say, you know, this is the end of the smart city, what I think they really mean is this is the end of the surveillance city. 
Mm-hmm. And I think we have to make that tweak in our thinking. Smart cities are not digital cities. They're livable environments that blend the best components of all the technology we possess, whether it's old like you or new like me. <laughs> oh. and, it's, <laughs> and it's nice to be back. Thank you very much, Matt. Okay, if you, if you missed any part of this show, uh, don't forget you can download the podcast wherever you normally download it from. I recommend the BFM app. It's available in the Apple App Store or Google Play. Um, you can also head over to um, the Substack website page thingy, Matt, yeah, tell people. Yeah, Pop Substack. Um, I'm, I'm just putting out little, uh, little stories um, three or four times a week, um, just sort of. Uh, quick updates on science and tech stories plus you know things i'm watching reading and listening there you go check it out i'll be back a little bit later on today uh, folks but this of course has been the end of matt's plane here on bfm 89.9 the business station Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.